me Angelo, Angelo, you had me Angelo. You had me Angelo, oh, you had me Angelo. Playing the cello has so many pluses, it never grows old. Give it one listen, you'll see what the fuss is. Its tone is like gold. on a Friday. That means it's time to start practicing. See how much we can get in this evening, but certainly start planning our, our long practice sessions for Saturday and Sunday. And that's what this series of interviews is all about. So let's get right to it. With me today is Dr. Elizabeth Morrow. I'm delighted to have her with me, and you'll soon find out why. How are you doing, Dr. Morrow? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. So, Happy to be here. <laughs> all right. Delighted to have you. Thank now, um, I'm sure some percentage of the, the viewers are all from already familiar with you and your work, but for those who aren't, can you uh, set the context a little bit, your musical background? Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, I professionally uh, began my career as an orchestral musician. Um, I studied at IU. I moved to Germany and uh, studied in Germany. And then I actually moved to Switzerland and worked in Switzerland. Um, it was in Switzerland that I met uh, a cellist that inspired me to rethink the way I approached the instrument. That was Michael Flaxman and I can talk more about him. Um, and he, uh, eventually he got a job in California. So I moved to California. I came back to the United States and, and got my master's degree there and then went to USC to do my doctorate with Eleanor Schoenfeld. And in 1991, I got a, an assistant professor position at the University of Texas in Arlington. And I was there until 2012 uh, as full professor. Um, so I had a good long teaching career there and performing career and I loved it. And um, that's kind of in a nutshell. Excellent. Now you have you have written quite a bit. You've presented many times on different aspects of cello playing. I will not ever forget your wonderful performance and presentations at UW, you know University of Wisconsin Whitewater as well. Oh. And I'm just wondering, are there some general principles as to what what inspires you about the subjects you're going to look into for um, coming up with, uh, you know, additional new approaches to and researching further? Yeah, well, I think like many of us, my inspiration comes from my own journey, uh, the things that I didn't understand that I wanted to understand 
that would help me be a better musician and a better cellist. So uh, many of the presentations I've done, especially through uh, the American String Teachers Association, um, sort of revolve around the subject of um, physicality using the body and specifically focusing on the aspect of weight, how, where we derive weight from in our physical motion, and then how do we balance that weight appropriately on the instrument. And this all came about because even though I was a, a young professional in working in Switzerland, um, I was frustrated as a, as a cellist and as a musician because I didn't feel that I could get the sound that I needed. I didn't feel that I could manage difficult technical passages with any aplomb. I knew I had too much tension. And the messages I'd gotten, uh, for whatever reason, basically were, well, you're just too tense. Don't be so tense. <laughs> and I didn't understand what that meant. And I didn't, know, I didn't know how to move away from that. I had to move towards something. And, and that was when I met Michael Flaxman uh, in Switzerland. And he ended up, um, he wasn't at the time, but he ended up being the professor of cello in Mannheim. Um, but when I worked with him, he was, he set up a, a wonderful masterclass in a little town in Switzerland, Schaffhausen, Switzerland, it's on the Rhine. And he sort of took over this old hotel in downtown Schaffhausen um, that had maids rooms up on the third floor. And he brought cellists from all over Europe to this little hotel and we could stay in these rooms for like $3 a night because they were just, it was just a little room with a bed and, and we'd say it would be a week at a time, uh, performing, studying, discussion, you know, understanding. Uh, and that's where I began to really look at my technique um, and began to understand what where my problems stemmed from. My problems stemmed from the fact that I didn't understand how to use form to my advantage. I was taught to do things a certain way. This is a perfect example. An early teacher, play with a high wrist at the frog, low wrist at the tip, you know? And I can imagine that it looks that way when you're looking at it from an, you know, an outside perspective, but it re there's really no understanding of the, the function of the form. And that's where my playing lacked uh, understanding across the board. I didn't understand the function of how I was using my body. And it took me about six months of working with this idea. Uh, how can I use my, my weight? And depending on where the point of contact is, the weight can be different parts of the body, but how I'm using my weight and uh, where to apply it in what in which degree uh, for power and control and ultimately relaxation because when you when you have form that's based on a function like a lever for example um, you only need to use the muscles that are necessary to maintain that form and what happens is that often and I was doing using muscles musculature that didn't have anything to do with the form I was trying to um, use. An example of that would be um, 
you know, thinking if I raise my arm up and my shoulder and, and really push into the, I could get more sound. Um, well, that doesn't work. You know, the tension and the problems and the pain and, and learning that if I, if I can learn to, to use my, my torso and my arm and figure out how to balance that weight at my contact point, whichever amount of weight that I need, because there's degrees of weight, um, that I don't, I can get the sound I need with a third or, or half the work that I'm trying to do when I, when I'm, uh, you know, not understanding the value of form. So I like, I have on my wall in my studio, um, uh, that little, I don't know if it's a direct quote, but that little saying from Lewis Sullivan in Chicago, form follows function. So understanding the function of what I'm trying to do and what is the form that I need to send the weight to, to this place. Or, or if I, we're talking about the left hand, you know, what's the height that's gonna give me the proper leverage into the hanging finger, you know, things like that, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Now, um, another question. So we have been fortunate enough at Whitewater, for example, to have had some really, really uh, among the biggest name cellists perform on that stage. But your recital was extremely, extremely good and inspired. And I'm thinking about with this running topic of inspiration, I think there's sometimes that people when they're going with their inspirations, they're maybe not as cognizant of their, uh, the way that they're using their muscles. They might be a little bit uh, oblivious to some of those things. When you're on stage, I saw no um, conflict at all between very healthy use of the body to play the cello and inspiration. So can you, did, do you kind of have to toggle between those two things or how do you, how do you have that particular cake and eat it too? Well, of course, I think that those things get worked out through the practicing process um, because when we're not, um, if we're not doing something in a, in a logical, physical way, often it won't be successful. And I'm talking about a long shift, for example, if we're not, if we're not preparing the shift well, if we're not rebalancing, again, that's all about balance for me. This idea of a shift, I just want to add this in, you know, I always thought a shift meant my fingers here and then my fingers here, you know, like that was my, my small, small vision and understanding that a shift means I'm shifting the entire weight and focus of my body from this position to this position. So understanding those things and making sure in the, in the practicing process, in the learning process, because I don't start out with, I don't start with the musical inspiration. The musical inspiration is allowed by a healthy, relaxed technique that gives us the freedom to be spontaneous. So I start with you know, the learning process learning difficult passages, figuring out, you know, if there are awkward string crossings, I have to think about, well, where does my arm need to be for this? And am I gonna dip down my wrist or am I gonna rebalance my weight? Or, you know, what's the mechanism that's gonna give me control? Once we have that control through balance, then we're, we're really free to 
you know, commune with with the musical experience and and communicate. And I think you know you had uh, kind of wrote, written some ideas for me to talk about. And and one of these things about performance is that we have to be communicating. So first of all, so much of our time is spent in a practice room where we're not communicating at all. You know, we're really just analyzing and, and doing a lot of rote work. And, uh, you know, it's very much more inward. This idea of communication, well, we have to practice doing that. We have to practice performing. We can't practice, 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 and then go perform. We have to find venues for trying things out, making sure things work, and then feeling out the audience. What do they respond to? If I take more time here, you know, how quiet is the room? What, you know, what, what kind of rapport is there with an audience? Uh, and that's something I learned I had to do a lot of. I needed to practice performing so that I could feel comfortable in performance. Um, I had another thought about that that I was going to mention. Oh, well, I wanted to talk about nerves for a second too, because nerves tend to be something that get in the way uh, in performance. And I think that uh, adrenaline can be an enormous gift in performance. For me, it is. If I've prepared well, <laughs> if I'm prepared. Uh, what it does, it, it, it heightens the, the energy I bring to my vibrato and I channel adrenaline into my vibrato and it, it really kind of takes it to another expressive level. It's, it's hard to manufacture that because it's inherent in that, in that drug that's sort of surging through our, our blood veins. Um, but I also learned that this idea of keeping calm, keep calm, keep calm before performance. And then you go out on stage and all of a sudden you get a surge. And the surge is what makes it not manageable for me. It's like, oh no, where did that come from? I didn't practice with that feeling. You know, I don't know what to do with that. And so this is kind of a little trick that I discovered and I share it with my students and it may or may not be helpful for anyone, but I spend time the day of a performance or even the week before a performance imagining my fear and my terror <laughs> at being on stage in those most difficult passages. And I, it, it actually will physically manufacture some of that adrenaline. The value of that, first of all, is that I get used to the feeling. But secondly, especially if I do that on the day of a performance, I'm not um, surprised by it. And it's more even. It's already been, you know, it's already been released to a degree. It's not going to be the same as a performance, but I can get my head to a place where I can feel it. And so when I'm on stage, it's, it's a part of that experience now. It's not something that sort of blindsides me and gets in the way of performance. Now, you have taken these ideas and evolved them into, well, a couple of uh, different resources. Can you talk a bit about your websites, plural? Yes, I have one cello website, and I set that up uh, when I retired from UT Arlington in 2012. I, I felt that I had developed so many ideas to such a, a good place. And all of a sudden, I didn't really have the same venue for expressing them or using them. 
And so I set up a website called celloessentials.com. And it's a series of videos on uh, the experiential aspect of weight and balance, how to, how to find weight and balance. So I, I always found in my teaching, the most difficult thing is it's not something you can talk about. You can use the words. But if a student can't feel weight in their own body, if they don't understand this idea of a point of contact and everything focuses around that point of contact and, the, and this idea of form supporting how I transfer that weight, um, the words are useless. The words don't mean anything. So the website is sort of takes the student takes anyone through the steps of discovery, how to discover these sensations. Uh, and I've, you know, I've gotten ideas from many other wonderful pedagogues and then some things I've just come up with myself. Uh, one of the things that Michael Flaxman did with me that I've always used with my student is to demonstrate for them by having them be the teacher and I'm the student. And I will demonstrate what I, they're, you know, they're holding onto my arm or they're, you know, positioning my bow. And I show them what the student should be experiencing, feeling, and they'll feel that in my body so that when they come to it, they have already have an idea of what they're supposed to be looking for. So I love this kind of learning and just the experiential nature. We're not going to be able to apply any of this unless we understand the feeling behind the words. Yeah. That makes sense. Great. And NoteSense. Oh, thank you for asking about NoteSense. Now, NoteSense is not necessarily cello related. Uh, when I retired from UT Arlington, I was very interested in the subject of dyslexia. My son was, is dyslexic. Um, and I had worked with him when he was a child. And so this is something I wanted to do in life. I became a certified uh, language therapist, we're called, academic language therapist, which is another way of saying a dyslexia therapist. So I'm certified and licensed to work with dyslexic children and teach them how to read. And there's a very, very um, heavily researched style of instruction that is used for dyslexic students. And it has certain components that must be followed. It's multisensory, highly structured, um, it's sequential, it's cumulative, so everything you teach, the next, you know, once you teach something, the, the next thing you teach has to build on the skill that came before it. And uh, I did this for, you know, probably about six years. And then I had a cello student that came into my student uh, studio who really was struggling to read music the way my dyslexic kids struggled to read words. And I thought, well, where is the music reading program based on these principles, where do I find that, right? And, uh, and I discovered that there really is nothing like that. And I was so struck by it. I was driving when I had the idea of what happens if we combine these two areas? What could it do for someone who struggles? Um, I almost crashed my car. <laughs> you know, it's just like a lightning bolt and like, whoa, wait a minute. 
And I spent three years, um, just my own free time, um, researching, developing materials, struggling through Finale until I got hired someone to, to create the materials for me, um, hand drawing my own charts, um, this, that created a, a system based on these principles. Uh, I released it um, in summer of 2019, so it is available for sale. Um, the, the product is called uh, the NoteSense Music Reading Program, and the website is called notesensemusic.com. Um, and that's for all instruments. It's for wind, percussion, keyboard, any, any instrument. It's just about understanding the structure and nature of the staff, how it works, how rhythm works, but from a, a much more logical way than, than the way it's taught today. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing about that, that in my research, I, I looked at all these um, teaching programs, these methods, especially classroom methods. And I thought, um, I'm just gonna look at it from a reading perspective. Well, the entire method system is designed to teach kids how to play. It's not designed to teach kids how to read in a logical, methodical way. The reading in every case is secondary to the needs of playing. How you're going to teach a kid to be able to play a concert with their orchestra in six weeks. You know, what do you have to, what do they have to be able to do? Everything focuses around that. So the reading component definitely gets left behind. And they're, they're, I believe most certainly, although there's no research around this, so I can't say there's research that proves this, that there's a subset of students that just get lost, that don't get it. They're, they're the ones that are kind of looking around the room when they're playing an orchestra, looking to see which one they're supposed to change bow or what fingering are they using or what rhythm is that there, you know, and uh, not connecting with the page. So this program is designed for that kid and uh, I'm very proud of it, and I don't think there's anything like it. It's, it's unique. And I also <laughs> just um, released, uh, I don't know if the fourth episode is up, but I've created uh, podcasts about the system because every time I do presentations to school districts or whatever, I get about an hour, and there's so much to it. It's, it's very complex because it's so different from anything we do in music. That, um, so the, the podcast really goes in more detail about this whole process and what, how the teaching is different and how I arrived at the ideas and the structure that it has and, and things like that. So uh, yeah, thank you for asking about that. I, I get real excited when I talk about it and it's time, sometimes it's hard to shut me up. <laughs> no, that's, that's part of the inspiration. That is inspiring too. Yeah. Now, I did have one other question. How yeah. did it come to pass that you were translating uh, Gerhard Mantel's uh, the second book for cello? Oh, um, it was his first book. It was, oh, okay. it was Cello Technique. Ah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm no. sorry. No, no. I was just looking at cello technique yesterday. No, my mistake. You're right. Cello practice. Cello, cello practice. practice. Yes. Cello practice. Uh, so it so happened. I, I guess I met him in Los Angeles when I was working with Eleanor. Hmm. Honestly, I don't know how the invitation came about, but when I was uh, in my early years at UT Arlington, he came, uh, played a recital for us and did a master class 
And uh, he had just finished having someone translate the book. And he showed me the translation and it was not very idiomatic. I think it was a, a German probably that translated it, maybe. I, I don't remember who it was, but there were many, many things that didn't make sense as far as sentence structure or again, using the proper idioms. It was, it was too much of a direct translation. So I went through the entire book and uh, rewrote a number of passages and I did end up sharing a portion of that with the, the, the student that you put me in touch with. I found, I found that manuscript. He never did anything with that. To my knowledge, it was never published in English. So, which is, yeah, unfortunate. Um, and uh, I know we had had a conversation about maybe following up on that. Well, I've had kind of a crazy year and I haven't had an opportunity to do that, but it, certainly reminded me of our conversation and um, and that would be something worth still worth following up on with his estate uh, whether whether he did take take it any further no. whether this manuscript I have whether there would be some possibility of of getting that published uh, it would be an enormous resource it's a wonderful book it truly would it truly would yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it is available in German, of course. It, it is available, so any of your listeners that, <laughs> that can do that can read German. Uh, it's there for them as a, as a resource, but yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marl. This has been a wealth of inspiring things in, in all manner of, of respects and things to keep in mind um, there's so many things to think of, aren't there? So many things. I know one thing I wanted to say uh, because you had because of your your preface that this is about practicing for the weekend, yes. and I think so often we're practicing under duress. There's a deadline. There's an audition. There's a recital. There's a hearing. There's you know it. How often do we come to our practice session feeling the pressure before we even sit down? So when you talk about weekend practice, to me, that opens up possibilities of approaching it differently. Um, when you have a long period of time, first of all, you don't have to use the whole time playing. But one of the things about, and maybe you would agree with me or maybe not, but about, about good practice is, is mental focus and attention. I mean, so much of, to me of practicing is mental. That when, I, when we talk about understanding the form and the structure, this all has to be processed here. It has to be thought about, it has to be understood and felt in the body, but the, it starts in the brain to tell the body what to do, how to release, when to release, where to release. So to practice in a way where we don't experience mental fatigue, Take it in shorter segments. Pick, pick smaller bites, something manageable, maybe one shift, and, and really observe, listen, record, uh, video record. Try to understand what's not working and try to find 
maybe multiple solutions. What are some possibilities? And if I take these ideas around weight and balance, for example, how can I, where am I not, where am, am I not applying it? How can I apply it? So using that kind of time, this is why I love summer practice too. You know, it's the best kind of practice because I think it's where we can really accomplish that bottom line stuff that we can build on and allows us to survive those high pressure times. But I don't think we can really progress as cellists if we're not doing that kind of work in addition to that high pressure, you know, pounded out kind of practicing, which I think we all do at times. We kind of have to, and it's, um, you know, certain things necessitate it. But um, what a gift the weekend can be to, Re, to approach differently and, and rethink how we're doing things on a very basic level. Terrific. More words of wisdom. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, and uh, to our viewers, I hope you'll check out my still pretty recent website. You had me at cello.com where you can find hopefully other things you'll find useful for cello playing and inspiration. Uh, last week's recital upcoming concerts, the cello day with the Paparetude focus on May 16th, which you can attend virtually or in person, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you again, Dr. Morrow. My and pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. It's so great to see you. Likewise, likewise. Happy practicing, everybody. We'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>